Well, I don't know if you know anyone from Northern Ireland. If you do, you'll know the Northern Irish people are feeling a little bit awkward right now. Uh, you'll know that they have quite a way with words. My in-laws are both from Northern Ireland, and uh, they have great crack. They have quite a way with words, and I love the little sayings that they have. Um, if you've ever been to Northern Ireland, as I have, you, you, you get it when you're immersed in it. It's fantastic to hear. I'm going to give you one or two. Uh, so you've heard, uh, if you know anyone from Northern Ireland, you've heard this, they'll say, what about ye? Uh, isn't that how they say it? No? What about ye? Is generally how it goes, or about you, if they can't even be bothered with the what. Um, which generally translated is translated, uh, how's it going? Are you doing all right? One of my favorites is this next one here. The jalopy is banjaxed. Does anyone know what that means? Hands up if you actually know what that means. <laughs> There's one or two folks there. That basically means, oh dear, my automobile needs fixed. Uh, my car is broken. Um, it's, it's an odd one. Um, there's, they've got a great way with words. I remember even driving down a motorway past Belfast one time. And in a general sense, these, you know these signs that you get that say, fasten your seatbelt, or uh, no, they say things like, don't drink and drive? Well, in Northern Ireland, they go to town, they say, never ever drink and drive, which is great to see. My favorite one, though, my favorite of the Irish sayings came uh, one time, I heard it firsthand from a police officer. And uh, let me tell you the story about that. My brother-in-law was getting married over in Northern Ireland and having picked up the car in Belfast, we were trying to really find our way out of it. And we were driving around in this big black Volkswagen Charan uh, with blacked out windows. And uh, don't ask me how, but I took a wrong turning and found myself driving up somewhere that's known as the Shankill Road. Um, to anyone who knows anything about Northern Ireland, if, if there's any... If there's a street in Belfast that you really don't want to take a wrong turn into, I suppose it's the Shanker Road. It's, it's famous for being a hotbed for loyalist paramilitaries, really. Now, I actually want, I did this, I did this twice, would you believe it? Um, one time we did the very same thing, only to come face to face with a hearse surrounded by lots of men in balaclavas. That was a paramilitary funeral procession. It was very scary. Anyway, on this previous occasion, we were lost. And I was just about to pass a junction at the top of the Shank Hill Road when I spotted a policeman. So I thought, ah, I know what I'll do. So I slammed on the brakes, I jumped out the car, I jogged over towards a policeman while reaching in my inside pocket for <laughs> a map. <laughs> and as I did, the policeman could, took what can only be described as a combative stance and his friend who was behind the police car, jeep tank thing, came out from behind it and they looked very severe, and it was that point that I realized I was running towards a roadblock. And then I did what anyone would do in that kind of situation. I just stopped and put up my hands. <laughs> I didn't quite know what to do. And then I said, I'm looking for directions, okay? So um, that's what I did. The first officer, very, very, he understood. He very, very kindly helped me out and told me where to go politely. And the second officer then, just as I was about to turn away, said, uh, hey mate, next time you get lost in Belfast, think again about slamming on the brakes of a blacked out car by a police roadblock, jumping out 
your car with your hand rummaging in your jacket pocket. And then he said these words to me, you're not wise. And that's my favorite. You're not wise. It is this lovely, polite way of addressing a person's real foolishness, or in my case, stupidity. Now, as sayings go, I think that's a pretty good summary of what the Bible says about every single person in humanity. You're not wise. You are not wise. Wisdom, according to the Bible, is the thing that's needed to live for God in the righteousness that he requires. And wisdom, according to the Bible, is, is really the right application that all we come, of all we come to know about God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's choosing, on account of all that he has given us in his words, the best and the noblest course of action. So wisdom is, as I often teach my kids, you know, knowledge, I say, is when you take what's in here and put it up here. But wisdom is when you take what's up here and you live it out in everyday life. You put it into practice. But every single one of us lacks wisdom. We are definitively, as the Bible says, foolish. So what do we do about that? Well, I think in this passage we find out. I think we find a passage that is fundamentally following the plan of God, the storyline of God's promises starting to be fulfilled, pointing forward toward Jesus as Solomon, as we saw last week, is anointed as king and is charged with obeying God's decrees and guarding them, keeping them, living them out. And I want to approach two, uh, 1 Kings 3, 1 to 15 using two points tonight. The first being, you're not wise, and the second being, ask God for wisdom. Quite simple. So, number one, you're not wise. In verses 1 to 3, we see that Solomon lacked wisdom. Um, you're supposed to look at verses 1 to 3 and say, oh, Solomon, you're not wise. Um, we see this in three particular ways very quickly. He foolishly chose the wrong alliance, creating a treaty with Pharaoh, the king of the nation that once enslaved their people and killed their children. Uh, God prohibited this in Deuteronomy 17. Moses taught them, don't create alliances with Egypt. As we've seen in our Isaiah series months ago, actually, uh, God has a place for Egypt in the forthcoming plan that the Messiah will bring in the nations and so on. But for these guys here, for Solomon, no treaty, but he chose the wrong alliance. Secondly, he foolishly chose the wrong woman, marrying a princess of Egypt. That's wrong not because of her race, but because of her faith. She wouldn't have been a believer in the one true God, and God had prohibited marrying one of those in Deuteronomy 7. And he foolishly chose the wrong place of worship. Worshipping at the high places. The high places, as we'll see in the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings as we eventually get into it, is, uh, are places where idols were worshipped. The sacrifices that the people make, as we see in verse 2, and Solomon even makes in verse 3, are not to God. Because God had prohibited this, of course. In Exodus 20, you have the Ten Commandments, the first two prohibit Worshipping anyone but the true God and making an image and worshipping it. And even as we pause there, I wonder if we start to say, okay, well, 
I'm, I'm, I wonder, am I choosing the wrong alliances? Am I becoming a worldly person? In what ways? Am I choosing the wrong kind of relationships? Relationships that God has prohibited in his word. Am I taking steps to enter into those? What kind of mistakes or sins do we see in our lives that we might, well, we might shush just so that we can get on with doing what we want to do? Are those choices wise or foolish? The Bible's really clear. Whenever we disobey God's word, we can be certain it's foolishness. Well, we saw that Solomon lacked wisdom, and yet we see in verse 3 these signs of hope. Solomon loved the Lord. And here's where we start to see, even in chapter 3, the, the dividedness <laughs> that's in his heart. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father, David. And at that, you're thinking, yes, that's, yes, love the Lord. Walk in accordance to his instructions. As Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And yet the sentence continues, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense in the high places. He's foolishly choosing the wrong places of worship. Now verse 3 describes this divided heart very well for us. Solomon, it seems, I mean, we have to just take it what it says here. Solomon genuinely loves the Lord, but he's making some poor choices. There is in his heart a deep desire to do God's will. A deep de desire to express his love for God in the ways that God has prescribed. Yet he's not doing that perfectly. He's not doing that in the right manner. Indeed, from what we read here, it sounds like his heart is pulled in a couple of different directions. And again, how many of us here tonight would know exactly how that feels? I suppose I only need to ask you the question, do you love the Lord, to find an answer. So let me ask you the question. Do you love the Lord? Do you love God? Now to that, we as believers would say, oh yes. I'm pretty sure that if your heart has been humbled by the conviction of sin and made new by God's grace, if your heart has truly been transformed by your understanding of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you've seen him start to change you bit by bit into his glory, you say, yes, I love the Lord. But in two hours' time, we could be watching things on a screen that we should not watch. Videos that show that we have a divided heart. Or we react angrily to someone's criticism of us because we want people to think that we're pretty great. And in doing so, we'll show that we have a divided heart. Or we'll entertain a low-grade discontentment for the rest of the week with God because we feel like he's just not taking away the thing that we want him to take away and thinking like that can show that we have a divided heart. Aren't there a million things that we could each list, broadcast, lay out that would show that we have divided hearts? 
yes, I love you, Lord, but practices that betray the pool of other loves. I love Jesus, and I want to love him more. I, I, I'm sure like you, say with Paul, uh, the things I want to do, I do not do, and what I hate, I do. I think it's why I love the song, feeling this tension. I think it's why I love the song, Immortal Honors Rest on Jesus' Head. I think it gives perfect expression to the feelings of my heart when we sing, Oh, that my soul could love and praise him more. His beauties trace, his majesty adore. Live near his heart, rest in his love each day. Hear his dear voice and all his will obey. There's longing in that, isn't there? Don't you find that? There's trajectory in that. Even if there is this inner wrestling in my heart, the pull of other loves. Do you experience the same? If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here. I wonder if you've realized this about Christianity yet. That Christianity is fundamentally not about the, the, the place that you attend, the ritual you go through. Christianity is not just about what you believe. It's about who you love. And so I want to ask you, do you love the Lord? If not, we need to recognize that this is one of the things that God himself requires of us. Jesus himself said in response to a question about what is the greatest commandment, says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In other words, with everything you've got, love him, love him. And if you can't say in your heart, I love him, then please let someone show you the extent of Jesus' love for you by showing you from God's words what his love really looks like. To show you from God's words the eternal son of God laying down his own life, dying outstretched on a cross in utter agony, bearing the weight of our guilt and shame as he takes our sin upon himself, satisfying the justice of God. Finishing the work that we could never accomplish a life of perfect righteousness and a perfect <coughs> sacrifice in our place. He did that and rose again three days later that you might love him for his work, love him for his person, turn from your sin and turn to him in faith. Speak to the person who brought you tonight. Ask one of us in the prayer team after the service at the front or myself, I'll be at the door. Uh, I'd be happy to chat to you about this. One of the things, of course, that demonstrates the genuineness of Solomon's love as we see it in these chapters of 1 Kings is found in the fact that Solomon very honestly admits his lack of wisdom. Uh, that's what we see in point two as we see him ask God for wisdom. Look with me, verse four and following. 
First of all, before we consider his prayer, we have to notice first God's grace. The fact that one who completely lacks wisdom is is approached by God. God is the one who initiates this. You saw that, of course, in verse 4. So the king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. Verse 5, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And in this, we see God graciously moving towards Solomon. Solomon did not deserve this approach, or this invitation to ask for something. Now, this all happens when Solomon is at Gibeon. 2 Chronicles 1, a corresponding passage to this one, tells us that the tent of meeting was there. That tent of meeting was, if you like, a place of worship that went with the people of God through the desert as they went between Egypt, as they left it, and the promised land. It found its way to Gibeon. That's where the tent of meeting was, but Deuteronomy 12 said it shouldn't be there. Um, It's supposed to be in Jerusalem, and Solomon is supposed to be in Jerusalem, which is why he goes there in verse 15 after he's received wisdom. But currently, that's not where he is. He's at Gibeon. And yet, the Lord appears to him and amazingly offers him this blank check. Ask for whatever you want me to give you. What would you ask for? Some people would give anything not to die. Solomon doesn't ask for that. Many would give anything to have enough money to not worry. But Solomon doesn't ask for that. What would you ask for? I think if we're honest about the things that we desire, the answer to that question would be very revealing. How many of us immediately thought of something for ourselves? Or how many asked for something for someone else? What we find in in these verses is that Solomon asks for wisdom. And interestingly, Solomon's prayer is wonderful here, actually. Solomon asks for wisdom, and his prayer is founded on what God has done. You see this in verse 6. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. So what David, uh, Solomon does in this first instance in prayer to the Lord God is say, you have been extremely generous towards my father. To the king who went before me, you have kept your covenant. You've kept your end of the deal, your end of the promise. You have blessed him in wonderful ways and graciously so, For in many and varied ways, David, though he was a man after God's own heart, was not perfect. Sinned in many serious ways. So Solomon recounts this promise. A covenant promise to David that he would have someone from his line on the throne. He reiterates, even before God in prayer, that has now happened. Here I am. And then in verse 8... 
we actually see an allusion to God's promise to Abraham. So he talks about the people that you have chosen that I have to look after. People too numerous to count. That's harking back to Genesis 15. That key promise to Abraham that he would have descendants as many as the stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. So Solomon, before God in prayer, is recounting his generosity and his faithfulness. And then we see Solomon in verse 7 being very honest about his own neediness. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. So he's not saying here that he is like eight. He's not an infant. Uh, he's not a young child. He's old enough to get married, we see in here. But he is expressing in this his own neediness. He is acknowledging, in other words, his own limitations. And this is weighing heavily on him, we can see. I love taking my children swimming. It's a lot of fun. And occasionally, one, an adventurous one in particular, jumps in um, or gets into deep water and all of a sudden finds that he's a little bit out of depth. And I think I do rescue him. Um, that's Solomon's experience. Solomon's experience is like my son jumping in when he just shouldn't. Um, Solomon finds himself out of depth and his prayer expresses his neediness. And his prayer expresses the weight of responsibility that's on him. As we see in verse 8, your servants here among the people you have chosen. In other words, this is big. Ruling your people as a vice regent of yours, as the sovereign king that you have put in place under your rule, this is a big deal. He says there are great people, too numerous to count or number. This is weighing very, very heavily on him. He's feeling the responsibility of it to govern the people well. So that's why Solomon next prays with boldness and selflessness. Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this wisdom of yours. And this is Solomon's request for wisdom. To discern between right and wrong that he might walk in the ways of the Lord and encourage the people that he's responsible for to walk in the ways of the Lord and offer discernment in cases of justice. In the alliances that he ought to form. In the things that ought to motivate his heart, the desires that ought to shape everything that he does as the king and the great king's representative before the people. It's an incredible thing to see. Make me wise, Lord, he prays. Help me to take what's in here, Bible. Help me to take what's here, Bible, and store it in here in the mind. And then to take what's in here and live it out in everyday life. Give me discernment. We'll see what that looks like next week in three or four different instances, actually. All of which point to the fact that Solomon, well, maybe Solomon just might be the forever king that has been promised. He experienced so much blessing. But he's selfless as he makes this request for wisdom to choose the best and most God-honoring course of action 
but he wants to do it not so that he can really enhance his own life, but so that people around him will be blessed and happy. What a selfless request. How does God respond? Well, we see this in verses 10 to 15. We see him respond. We see two responses, really. We see the happiness of God in in the first instance. He was delighted. Delighted not only to give Solomon what he asked for, as we see in verse 12, but actually promises wisdom in abundance. I'm not just going to give you discernment. You're going to be the wisest man who ever lived. And as we'll see in the next section, the king became what God promised. He gave him wisdom beyond what Solomon's natural intellectual ability would would give him. He would be endowed with an even greater insight than would be naturally possible by simply studying God's word. He gave him the kind of insight and wisdom that can only have come from God, as Proverbs 2.6 says. Now, to this day, we can learn from Solomon's wisdom, indeed, by reading his wise sayings in Proverbs, exploring his philosophy of life in Ecclesiastes, studying what love and romance looks like in the Song of Songs. There is much, there is a great legacy from Solomon in terms of wisdom that God has given us and shown us it's his word. The second thing we see in terms of God's response, of course, is this generosity of God. He demonstrates his generosity and his happy grace by giving Solomon even the things that he did not ask for. All the covenantal blessings of a king who would rule in wisdom. The blessings of a king who would rule his people in prosperity and peace. Thus, displaying and reflecting the reign of our great God and King, the Lord God himself. It's incredible. Solomon, we meet at the start of this passage, and he is not wise. God graciously moves towards him and invites him to ask for anything he wishes. And he asks selflessly and boldly for wisdom. And the Lord gives him more than he could ask for or imagine. So what does this passage mean for us? Well, the first thing that we have to see is that this is a passage that's all about Solomon. It's a very particular promise of God to anoint and bless Solomon as the king over Israel. Yet there is application for for us. You are not Solomon. We are not kings and queens ruling over God's holy people. But the same God who met Solomon at Gibeon, moving towards him in grace, meets us in James chapter 1 and invites us to ask for wisdom, too, to live for him. Not as vice regents over his kingdom, but subjects of that kingdom. James 1 verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So even there, we are invited to ask God for such wisdom. Another application comes in relation to prayer. Of course, you are not Solomon. We are not kings and queens. But surely we should pray like Solomon did. Remembering God's character, that he's gracious, moving towards us with the aim of blessing us. 
And that's what it means to be a part of his kingdom. <coughs> Recalling God's generosity. Even as we look at his son, if he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things, Romans 8 says? Jesus himself encouraged this kind of prayer. Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to us as well. I wonder if we pray like we believe those promises. We are to acknowledge our neediness. Even as Solomon did with the responsibilities that we bear in mind. Now again, we are not kings and queens. This does not apply to us in terms of our rule over people, but in terms of our responsibility in the spheres that we have, perhaps as a brother or sister in a church family for sure, as a witness on mission, as a husband or a father, a wife or a mother, whatever kind of relationship. We need to acknowledge our neediness, not one of us. I do not have it in me to be a perfect husband. I do not, do not have all the wisdom I need. There is a distinct lack of wisdom in me that would prevent me from being the fully God-honoring parent that I am meant to be to my children. I don't have it in me to have the kind of wisdom that I need to be seriously discerning when it comes to interacting with the family of God, when a brother or sister, when I talk with a brother or sister about an issue that's going on in their lives, and discuss that with them and seek to give counsel, to encourage them from God's words, to have the courage to rebuke them frankly if I see sin so that I don't become complicit in it, as Leviticus 17 says, or to encourage them and stabilize them, to prod people forward in the faith with joy in the Lord Jesus, as 1 Thessalonians 3 encourages. That's why, out of our neediness in every single area of our life, in every single relationship that we are in, with every responsibility that the Lord has endowed us with, we must ask for wisdom, surely. And make the happiness of God's our goal in prayer. How that would regulate the things we ask for. And if you're here tonight again and you're not a Christian. I want to say that the way for you to follow Solomon's wise advice. Is to study the scriptures which are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. As wise as Solomon is, and as wise as we will see him become in the coming weeks, he's just a shadow of the king who is infinitely wise. Solomon will demonstrate, even as we'll see in this series, his humanity by having his heart turned away from sin. Even though he was wiser than anybody else ever, his heart was pulled by other lovers. And as we'll see later in 1 Kings 11, it was pulled by the idols of success and power and money and sex. 
And these are common idols today. Even with all the wisdom that comes with being the wisest man who ever lived, the heart is tragically drawn into sin when you do not love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and all of your strength. The bottom line, of course, is that wisdom will not save you. But it shows you how you can be. You see, when the New Testament speaks of Solomon, it does so in order to say that someone greater than Solomon has come. Solomon may be the greatest human being who has ever lived. Jesus himself is the greatest God-man and the wisest God-man who has ever lived. As the divine son of God, he knows all things. He rightly applies all that he's come to know. Throughout his earthly life, Jesus always chose the best and the noblest course of action, never falling foul of a divided heart, never giving in to foolish temptation, always and everywhere, in every instance, taking the knowledge of God that was up here and living it out in his daily life. No one could say of him, you're not wise. No one. Instead, we hear them say what we read at the very start of our service, that Christ has become for us wisdom from God. Christ indeed, as 1 Corinthians 1.24 says, is definitively wisdom from God. And the wisest thing he ever did, according to the Bible, was to die by crucifixion. And the Bible admits very frankly that the cross of Christ seems like foolishness to people in this world as they fail to understand it and can't quite figure it out. But if wisdom is the right application of what we know and choosing the best and noblest course of action, then his death puts wisdom on display and calls on us to believe in him. For we were dead in our sins and the right course of action in his view, as the one sinned against, was to die a sacrificial death so that we might be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life with him in the new heaven and new earth. Will you repent and believe the good news? Will you turn away from foolishness and in wisdom turn to God tonight, believing in him? I pray you would. Christ is wisdom, the wisdom from God. Let's take a few seconds into quietness as we pray in response.